Smith. I don't. Pat is going to take him. Frank's going to take him. We got both corners filled out here. Even if you're not a kid, there's an adult here to hold your hand. Uh, I, I can't, Frank. Not right now. I I know, man. I know. I, next next time. Next time. Next time. There's always next time. There's always the next time. All right, I'm going to go. No, all right. Uh, Kim, would you mind just re-explaining what you just did? And, and you'll save me the hassle of trying to come up with this introduction again because that was perfect and the songs just kind of nailed it. And I'm just going to put it simply point blank for everybody. In its simplest truth, God's enduring faithfulness is a gift of grace according to the promise of life that's in Christ. That's just one of a what I feel like a gazillion gifts of grace. But, dear Heavenly Father, as always, knowledge of the truth and the ability to know you, to love you, and to serve you is indeed a gift of grace and something that we are grateful for as your church, as your people, your adopted sons and daughters, and just people you called for your own possession. And so, Lord Jesus, as we approach your word, certainly tune our hearts and our minds to your will. May this certainly be for your glory and ultimately our good as your people. May we continue to lead lives that uh, are fruitful in this. And so, we love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters. I want to remind you first and foremost, before we even read the text, that this is a letter of encouragement to an elder and his church that are struggling with fear and timidity. It's very similar to perhaps what we experience today. And we're actually going to hang on to that fear part a little more, as even Kim brought up this morning, that uh, that is something that definitely holds us back. I see a lot of head nods. You didn't even have to say it. Amen, brothers and sisters. I understand completely about fear. And so we're going to tackle that. But today, again, the glory of this, this encouragement, most certainly to help us and remind us to remain faithful to Jesus because Jesus will always. And you know how you can tell when someone's lying? They use the word always. But do you know what I'm not doing right now? Using the word always, especially in talking with our Lord and Savior Jesus, is that he will always keep his promises to you. He will always remain faithful. Now, if I said, that always happens to me, I'd be lying to you. Always is one of those tell words. But when used with Jesus and our Lord and Savior, it is an absolute truth because he's not going to not remain faithful to his promises that he made for his children. So we can certainly praise the Lord for that. All right, I assume you're all at 2 Timothy chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 
It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Amen. So, this is a verse-by-verse, verse, and this is, from what I understand, a very popular text, because it comes very neatly packed and tidy, if you will. And so, this very first verse that we get to, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Well, hopefully this feedback kind of slows down a little bit. But uh, ultimately, what we need to talk about is the gifts of grace that we've had already and that we're dealing with and what we're going through on. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. It sounds like a very simple, normal thing, but let me add a whole lot of weight to it so that it sticks and that it makes a lot more sense. We've been talking through the whole first chapter about gifts of grace too. This whole sermon series is called Gifts of Grace According to the Promise of Life in Christ. And it is according to what has happened in our salvation, ultimately, first and foremost, that we get all of these blessings. And so I'm going to repeat parts of the chapters back. I'm not going to point it out, but you need to hear it again, the gifts of grace. Maybe they'll stick in. If you are one of those people that love taking notes and you like making lists, this truly is the sermon for you. I have lists upon lists upon lists of notes in this that hopefully will be a reference and uh, encouragement to you much longer than just today. But the very first, we'll start from the top and continually work our way down. I don't think these are in any specific order, but I think we should start with this one. Jesus saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So we spent a long time last week talking about salvation, certainly talking about calling, talking about how holiness were set apart from the rest of the world. And it's not because of things that we have done. Um, and I'll use Seth's phrase again, and I'm pretty sure he got from somewhere else too. But uh, ultimately, works don't produce salvation Salvation produces works. There's nothing you do to earn God's merit. It's how we respond after the fact. And I want you to think about it in context too. Jesus isn't about, oh, you did this big project. Thank you. You did this. You did that. Look at how you fed these 5,000 people in my name and my honor. It's about faithfulness. It's not about the works that you do. It's about being faithful to the one who saved you and called you and gave you a holy calling. Not because, again, of anything you've done or anything you will do, 
but because of his purpose and ultimately his grace. And it is within that that we see that this is a gift of grace according to the promise of life in Christ. I mean, salvation is about eternal life. It's about being sanctified here in the moment, continuing to grow, and then eventually we will be with Jesus in heaven, fully sanctified, led by the Spirit. Now, another gift of grace, and I just kind of alluded to it, abolished death, and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So there's a lot of ways that we can look at this. We can look at the gospel, which means good news, as indeed good news, because the salvation that has been given to me isn't based on what I do or how I do it, but it's based on Jesus' accomplished works and me trusting and resting on what he says is complete and what he says is ultimately done. And as we know, sin brought death. Every human being is going to physically die. But then there's the next life or the next death after the fact. But Jesus ultimately, for us, he has condemned sin in the flesh. Someday we will be out of these sin suits and we will fully understand and be able to choose righteousness all the time rather than our own selfishness and our heart's wayward desires at times. But I would say, too, with all of this, that God has given us wisdom and God has given us knowledge of life in and of itself and the world and, and who we are, why we're here, what's wrong with the world, what's being done to fix it. And he gave us a place to put hope because I've put my hope in a lot of worldly things, as I'm confident you have as well. And I'm guessing, much like me, you've all been disappointed. <laughs> at one time or another, because you've put your hope in either another person, another sinner, that can very easily let you down, or some type of materialism, or some ideologies, or something that ultimately has let you down. But knowing the truth for life, and knowing God is creator, and the world, and the entire story of redemption, and you know, certainly throughout all the years and everything, Wisdom and knowledge to lead a successful life. I would say that is most definitely a gift of grace, according to the promise of life that's in Christ. In addition to that, as if these two aren't enough, and, and believe me, I've got a lot more here, but it's not all-encompassing of all the gifts of grace that are in the Bible. I'm literally just going through the first chapter here for you in this. He's given us true meaning and purpose to live a life built upon a firm foundation. Again, tying back to what I said with the wisdom and knowledge a little bit. That true meaning and purpose. Remember the calling that we have. And it's a holy calling in that. Our purpose, our meaning. Like understanding who we are and why we're here. Those major philosophical questions. Everything else is based on theory or accidents apart from Christ. Because with his truth, what else do we stand upon for the reason why I'm here? How else can I explain everything that's wrong with the world? Do I just point my finger at everybody else and be like, that's it? It's all you? I'm perfect, not you. And move on like that? That's the reality of where we're at, right? Because you don't, there, what else do you stand upon that could even be considered firm? Because everything has changed so much over the course of time and history because of the culture and because of the people. Now, 
the Bible's very much true in that regard, too, because all the sins that we still do, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me, well, you stand before God. Let's be real. You've made yourself your own personal little God. And perhaps, not even talking about yourself, you've worshipped family, friends, work, money, power, respect, you name it. We've all done it. So, true meaning and purpose to live upon a, a firm foundation. Remember, this, this has to do with function too, not status. At the foot of the cross, everyone is equal. But within the halls of the church, just thinking, Paul was an apostle, one who was sent. Then we have elders who are overseers of people who help and protect. Then there's deacons and then there's members, but we're all the church. Like, do I lord my title over you? Or does being called an elder help you understand what my purpose is and what my mission and what my calling in Christ's church is? We could very simplify this too and take out all elders, deacons, apostles, everything like that. We could just call ourselves the church and the great commission, the great plan is just simply go. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all Jesus has commanded us. And behold, he's with us always to the end of the age. Or you can fulfill it in the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Simplified. Overly simplified sometimes, perhaps. But it gave purpose. It gave meaning to what we were doing. Think about meaning and purpose behind when you're called an adopted son or daughter of the Lord Most High. Think about the purpose behind when I call you all heirs with Christ. Think about the purpose behind when I call you a Christian. Think about the purpose behind me calling you a disciple. Think about the church in general. All of those are quote-unquote titles, but they give definition and meaning behind what we do rather than an authority type of figure. Again, Jesus, this is his church. We are all part of his church. We have different roles and responsibilities. We have different gifts and talents, and hopefully we can use all those effectively. But they're not titles. They're purposes. They're meanings behind why we do the things that we do. So, he's given us that as well. God gives his children the gift of being their father, their Lord, and their Savior. Now, certainly I can add a bunch more words, but those are the only three that I've taken out of the first chapter, which are definitely still very powerful words. I like when Jesus says, let the little children come to me, because it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense in the in the in the <laughs> makes a lot of sense in the sense that we have a parent-child relationship. And in that parent-child relationship, and this ties into our faithfulness, if you will, before we even get to the text still, before all of that, that faithfulness and that understanding of the child, what type of child are you? Have you, are you the one that's dependent on Christ? Remember, Jesus tells us that we're born again and we must be born again, which means that there needs to be some growth. 
Because as an infant, as, as we know for those who are parents, they are completely 100% dependent on the father or the mother, more so the mother, but in this case, the father. And in respect to that, and as the child grows, I think we've all seen children go and we've all been children ourselves that have grown. There's the questioning toddler phase. There's the, I, I love you and I want to hang out with you and let's play together phase. And then maybe we'll get to the teenage. If you can just stand behind me a little bit, dad, that would be great. I like you, but not right now. I'm talking with these people and you're going to embarrass me. That's like the danger of maybe we've grown up too much. I feel like this is the danger of the Pharisees too. And for any of us that are that are, have these callings, that we can very much fall into that trap too. Like, I know better than dad. I'm smarter than him. I'm a teenager. You're so old. You don't know what you're talking about anymore, dad. I got this. And then we become highly independent of him. So I wanted to bring that up because that's a gift of grace too. Our spiritual growth certainly is a gift of grace, but the ability to call him Father, Lord, and Savior. Because not everybody gets that opportunity. I don't know if you know that or not. You should know that, but very much truth that not everybody gets that opportunity. And that indeed is a gift of grace to be able to call on the creator of heaven and earth and everything that's in it as your Father, as your Lord, and as your Savior. Also, faith, belief, trust, and I'm going to add this, confidence. All is a gift of grace, according to the promise of life that's in Christ. Spiritual gifts, our talents, that we are encouraged to fan into flame, as Paul put it for Timothy, to use frequently and to use to grow in love for the benefit of our brothers and sisters, as well as the glory of God and our good is what we're here for. I would also tell you family and friends are a gift of grace. Children are a gift of grace. Debatable. The, the church, God's family, is a gift of grace, according to the promise of life that's in Christ, as well as sound examples in word and deed for you, God's children, to follow. Indeed, are gifts of grace, according to the promise of life in Christ. And then lastly, maybe most importantly, but it's hard to weigh them because we're talking salvation first and foremost, but the promise and the seal and all the blessings that come with the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's God's power dwelling within us. It creates the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control within the bodies of the believers. And it's through situations and circumstances, as well as the wisdom and knowledge that is God's that we have because of the blessing of the Holy Spirit within us, the ability to interpret, to understand the word, to be comforted, all of these things come, and we have no need to fear. I want to remind you, too, that perfect love casts out fear. God initiated this relationship with you. If God didn't initiate this relationship with you, especially as the psalm said, it's true that 
if Jesus didn't love us first, we would not love him. And it's that perfect love of God that has been shown in the salvation that's been brought for the life of the believer that indeed is a gift of grace in our lives, without a doubt. And we have no need to fear, but there are two types of fear that I think we all deal with on a pretty regular basis. One is the fear of failure. I don't know how to talk to people about Jesus. What do you mean? How do you not know how to tell people what Jesus has done for you? How do you not know? Like, have you not experienced this yet? Or are you thinking that you have to have some kind of theological degree and some kind of background? And I'm not even wanting to try to talk to people because I'm just going to fail anyway. And then we close ourselves in and we, we tuck ourselves in a ball and we just don't go and talk or speak to anyone because we're scared of failing. And I'm not just talking about evangelism. This really happens a lot in all of our lives in general, the fear of failure. A lot of times we don't even take the step to, to be able to fail because we've just told ourselves in our heads, oh, we're just going to fail. There ought not be any of this within the life of the believer in Christ. I'm going to reemphasize this again. God is the creator of heaven and earth and every single thing that's in it. He understands how it works and how it operates. You are his beloved son and daughter. He has made promises to you that regardless of your faithfulness, he is going to keep. I'm not entirely sure why we're still afraid other than we're still sinners, if we know that truth. And it's that sin of guilt and shame that brings death that allows us to like, embrace that fear of failure rather than the lack of fear because there ought not be anything to fear because we're gods and this is his planet. He's given us lots of blessings. Again, still talking about all those blessings, right? And then lastly, the, the other thing, no need to fear, especially the blessing of the Holy Spirit, is fear of the unknown. That is something that attacks all of us on a regular basis as well. Like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. So I don't know what we're going into. Uh, like, let's look at the political climate of today. Like, I don't know where that's going. It's scary. It's not scary. There's nothing to be scary about, especially if you know Jesus is Lord and everyone who is in authority type of positions has been placed there by God. And if that's the case, I don't know why we fear. Again, other than maybe we don't know, or worse, maybe we don't believe Jesus is real, like what we talked about last week. So now I'm finally going to get to the text. Verse 1, I think it makes more sense now. Be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. I just listed off one, two, three, four, four, a lot of gifts of grace according to the promise of life in Christ. Be strengthened by those gifts of grace. Be strengthened by it. There's no reason not to unless you don't want to. But then this all comes back down on to you in the end, right? And so I've seen this text go two ways, right? I've seen this text go, and, and we're going this way today. Believe it or not, especially as we've started, grace-filled. You need a lot of grace. 
You need a ton of grace. Absolutely. Because maybe we're just some kind of disconnect between when we're here and when we're out there, as if there's something different. Like you've changed. You're a different person in here than you are out there, which is nonsense. You're still the same person in here or outside these walls. And so why do we behave differently sometimes too? But the opposite end of the spectrum, and I've heard it this way too, and it's certainly very awful, <laughs> is uh, legalistic and condemning. Let's talk about your enduring faithfulness. Let's talk about why you stink and why God is awesome, right? Like we could go that way, but let's face facts that that's not going to help any of us at any stretch of the imagination. So in the first verse, stand strong, be strong because of the gifts of grace according to the promise of life that's in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as you, again, get that confidence, that belief, that trust, that faith that God gives you, then you can start to look at the second verse. What you've heard from me entrust to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I gave you the Great Commission a little bit ago, which was the go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. That's your job. I know you all have other jobs on top of this job, but no, this was God's purpose and meaning is for disciples to make disciples, for the people to get through life together. Think about this, certainly in the family context. Uh, a lot of the Old Testament dealt with the, the Jewish, uh, the fathers teaching the sons and the daughters, and then you know the list goes down the line. Very simply, that's the same charge today as it was back then especially in regards to the faithfulness and speaking of the Lord. So pass those sound teachings along to future generations, future teachers, and your family too. Whoever the Lord gives you as an opportunity. A lot of times people are like, I don't know what to do for ministry. I don't know what, what, what to do. Like, There's no specific event for me to work on. <coughs> Good news. The Lord has given you all your own ministries. Do you have a family? Congratulations, you have a ministry. Do you work with other people? Oh, congratulations, that's a ministry too. Do you attend school of any kind? That's a ministry. I don't know if you know that or not. When you go shopping at the grocery store and you know there's other people around you and maybe someone needs help, that's a ministry opportunity. When you're at the gas station and you're filling up on gas and then, you know, you go and talk to people inside, it's an opportunity for ministry too. You all have ministries. There's no like, oh, but it's got to be this one backpack thing. And if we don't do this backpack thing, then we're not doing ministry. No, you're doing ministry all the time. Anytime you are with other people is an opportunity for ministry. It's an opportunity for discipleship. It's an opportunity to love your neighbor as yourself, as well as fulfilling the first great commandment, loving God, very simply by acknowledging his existence. Crazy, right? Wait, so I, if, I, if I love somebody, I should acknowledge their existence? Yes! Right? Common sense prevails. So that's the second part on what Paul is encouraging Timothy to think about. 
think about, certainly be strengthened by the grace and all the blessings that you've received. That's verse 1. Verse 2, pass those sound teachings along. Again, follows very simply to the great commission that we've experienced. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Nobody likes to see that, but if you've read the Gospels, you've seen that Jesus Christ led a life of suffering. If you're a human being, you have already know that life is not all sunshine and rainbows, and it does indeed include suffering of some kind. But remember, as Jesus even said, you know, they hated me, so they're probably going to hate you too. And that's okay, because I love you. And he's the creator of heaven and earth and everything that's in it. So one of his gazillion creations doesn't like you because you're talking about Jesus. But Jesus likes you and loves you. So are you valuing that one person over your Lord and creator? Be careful of this. We do it all the time. All the time. Because we're so worried about what this other person thinks of us that we can't possibly be labored to talk about Jesus in any way because it could offend this person, which if you knew the truth of the gospel and the good news, it is absolutely offensive because culture says, I do that. The gospel says Jesus did that and you take a seat <laughs> and submit because you can't do it. It is offensive by cultural standards, but we're not working within cultural standards in this. We're talking about spiritual standards and creation standards that God has done before everything all in itself. And so what he's saying is endure hardships together in this. And I want to remind you what we talked about on Easter a little bit. You're all at war, every one of you. Different wars, but the same war at the same time too. We all have physical challenges that give us war, we all have mental afflictions upon which we are at war. And let's be real, a lot of times we're at war with ourselves in our mind. And then spiritually, there's spiritual warfare too. So every day I deal in a physical war with my body. Every day I deal in an emotional or mental war with myself or with others. And then every day I'm at a spiritual war too. So now, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And just think about it and embrace it. A lot of people just don't look at it that way. And that's totally fine. I respect that. I understand that. But that's kind of my calling here to help encourage you in that. That especially since I hurt my back, I know this for a fact that people who are angry need a lot of grace. Pain made me really angry. <laughs> I lashed out sometimes, not happy about it, but I, I, I'm in pain. It's frustrating. It hurts. I don't want to deal with this. I can't do the things I want to do. I can't live the life I want to lead. I can't help. I can't serve. I can barely love. Like, I'm mad at everything. Like, yeah. And so sometimes when we come across these people who get really bent out of shape, it makes me wonder a little bit what kind of grace they need, what kind of war are they fighting in this moment? Is it a physical ailment? Is it an emotional ailment? Maybe their family members just died. Maybe, you know, maybe it's the spiritual war thing, but 
ultimately, like most people, especially because of sinners, are bent on self. So it's usually a physical or an emotional type of war that they're that most people are fighting, unless we know that they're Christian and we've maybe seen them in a congregation or something to that effect. But ultimately, endure those hardships together. And this is hard. <laughs> and lean on God and certainly lean on your brothers and sisters in Christ as well in all of this. And so verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one, please the one who enlisted him. Very much simple truth, but he uses it again as a context. I don't know how much we know about the military or war. Some of us, I know for a fact, have been in the military. I certainly respect you guys. Um, I struggle with the military in general for a very different reason. Um, and I know this for a fact as well, that even though I think the institution's an evil empire, I know not everybody in it is an evil empire and is bent to self. I know that there are good quality people still out there in that as well. The reason why I bring that up is that a lot of times when we're fighting this war, we're dealing this war, understand the military in a sense that you're never alone, right? You're in this together. First and foremost, we as Christians can look at it, we're in this together with Christ, but then we're also in this together with the local church and our brothers and sisters in Christ that we know. So, we're in this war together. It's devoted duty. It's disciplined and it's training. And then, of course, abstaining from those things. A lot of the divisiveness and, and what happens within church halls and congregations is earthly stuff that divides us. I want to remind you all that we've all been called in Christ. And it's that factor alone that we should all be able to get along with. It is statistically impossible to agree with any one person on every single issue that's out there, which means that we're going to butt heads about some topic sooner or later. The topic should never be Jesus is Lord. Like that's why we're here in the first place. If it has to deal with how we handle the culture or how we do a ministry or our political beliefs or our whatever beliefs that are out there, they're probably going to be different to some degree. And that's okay. But remember, we're in the mission together. And it's being within that mission together because Jesus is Lord. He saved you like he saved me Therefore, we both must be pretty special because I know I didn't do anything to be saved by Jesus, and I'm pretty sure you didn't do anything to be saved by Jesus, but he saved us. Therefore, I'm loved, you're loved. We're going to have to find a way to get along in love. And that's how it works, and that's what we're doing. And so, praise the Lord for that, to think about, especially... No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Be careful, but remember why we're all here, okay? And we're definitely going to share in suffering as those soldiers because it's our mission and our purpose, and that's the mission and purpose that we're on. The very next one, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And so, as an athlete, any of you athletes before, do you, uh, let's say you were a tennis player, as I'm looking at my wife. 
Uh, she was at one point in time. And I have no doubts in my mind that she can still today pick up a tennis racket and probably put me to shame because she played it professionally and I did not. She'll probably be like, dink, and it goes over there, and dink, and it goes over there. And I'll be like, how about you hit it to me? And, and, and not understand the game. And it, it'll all work out in the end, right? We're, we're doing great. We're doing great. But it has a lot to do with practice and what Paul said to Timothy into fanning into flame. An athlete certainly is not crowned. Like, like if I don't know the rules of tennis, I'm probably going to fail at tennis pretty hard. <laughs> if I don't know the rules of life according to what was set by Jesus, I'm probably going to struggle in life at different times for different reasons. Who knows? And I also want to remind you in this athlete terminology and as an example for you to consider, athletes and their success don't just happen overnight. It takes training. It takes discipline. It takes dedication to get where they're at. I say this a lot about the church, and again, this isn't to condemn anybody, but just to think about if this is the only time of the week that you eat, you're starving. You're starving yourself. If this is the only time during the week that you think about Jesus, talk about Jesus, of which I am the only one really talking about Jesus here, and there's no groups, there's no individual study, there's no personal growth, there's no anything, how well are you training? How well are you sustaining yourself? How well are you helping or hurting your own life? Food for thought. Because we need to eat. And if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you want more. And then you want some more after that. And then you want more after that. It's like your favorite dessert on high. <laughs> it's like, I like that. And I want more. And I want some more. And I want some more of that. How what we think about Jesus affects how we worship Jesus. Maybe we don't think very highly of Jesus. Therefore, we don't worship Jesus very much. But again, I want to encourage you in this that it takes discipline. It takes training. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes energy to be an athlete and to be a victorious athlete. And as Paul says, once he finishes the race, he'll get the crown of victory. And indeed, isn't that the truth for life, the endurance, if you will, to stay faithful to Christ. Not that, again, it's all on us, because Christ is faithful, but consider our callings and consider our roles. And a lot of times when we get scared and run away, we're running away for the wrong reasons. So consider those. And, of course, keep to the rules. Cling to the gospel teaching. Cling to what you know is truth for life, through Christ. And a runner runs alone, much like us, but ultimately it takes months of training and encouragement to be able to do that run by yourself. All right, now we go to the farmer. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, I think it's nice that we live here in Genoa and we're surrounded by farmland. It's much nicer, certainly back in the culture of the day. Everybody knew and everybody understood. But do you realize how hard 
farmers work for very little reward, if you will. Do you realize how many farmers are not farming anymore because they're constantly in debt and just don't have the family that wants to do it anymore, let alone the physical ability to do it anymore? And so, hard work brings future rewards. This is a dangerous thing I'm about to say, but certainly Jesus, as he said in the Sermon on the Mount, to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. A lot of us are like, I want my treasure now. I want it here on earth. I want that fancy car. I want that big house. I want everybody to like me. I would like some people to wash my feet sometimes. I'd like, you know, just a whole slew of me. Me, 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 me. But the farmer doesn't ultimately do it for himself, does he? The farmer does it for the benefit of many. But he does get the first share of those crops. He does get a reward for his hard work. It takes months and months and months and months. Knee high by the 4th of July. That's where corn should be at, according to uh, the farmer's almanac. And so if that being the truth and knee high by the 4th of July, that means you need to plant it sometime in May means maybe even earlier than that, then you still have to wait for it to grow because it's only knee-high by the 4th of July, which means that ultimately, maybe come September, October, we can actually get to the harvest. Jesus uses these types of analogies too. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There are a few farmers out there. I saw an excellent uh, thing that my wife showed me about uh, a cruise ship and a battleship this week. And I think it's very telling and it's very fitting of the mentality of some in much larger churches. Again, I don't put much merit into it as biblical truth, but we can see for, for what it is, especially in culture. And so the two examples underarching the church is, one, the church is a cruise ship where a few people work and everyone else relaxes. Or the alternative slide was a battleship where it's all hands on deck. Which do you think it is? Which do you think it's supposed to be? Which do you think culture and society has bred it to be? You can come up with your own answers, and I think you know the answers. So hard work does bring future rewards. And I want to encourage you with this too. You personally may not see the rewards. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people over the course of time where I've, it's been some type of apologetics or it's some kind of biblical truth conversation and I did not see the light bulb go off. And in fact, the wall went up and then like nothing was going through, right? And it's like, well, that's not really working so well. Didn't mean I don't try. Doesn't mean I failed either. Because it's not my job to save someone. It's the Lord's job to save someone. But if I can be used to, to, for the Lord's service to help bring about salvation for someone, by all means, let's do it. But I might not ever get to see that. And there's been a lot of conversations where I don't necessarily see it. In fact, I was just thinking this morning about uh, the last time I went on a riverboat cruise uh, with my wife had like a three plus hour conversation with this gentleman all about life and death and Christ and the terribleness of religion and the works-based system it produces and how it's misleading and all kinds of different things. 
And then we both went on our merry ways. And I never really saw him again. And he lives, uh, from my understanding, in New Jersey, and I live here in Illinois, and maybe something was fruitful in it, maybe something wasn't. I don't know. But I know I stayed faithful to Jesus in that moment, and I certainly talked about him, and I trust the Lord will use that for his glory and perhaps his good, the other gentleman's good. And that's got to be good enough for me, right? Because I'm not going to see it. Am I, do I get a personal victory when I, quote, unquote, bring someone to the faith? I don't get a personal victory. I've already told you about all these gifts of grace that the Lord has given me that they're gifts of grace. It's unmerited favor. That's what grace is. It's not because I earned it or deserved it. It's because God is who he is and he gave it that way. So all of these things and a lot to think about just in the first point. Reflect on everything. Think over what I say. And then this is, I think, where we get caught up. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. As if the Lord's just going to put it in your head that this is how that works. Here's where the catch is. Are you looking at the world through the Lord's eyes as you've been blessed to see? Or are you just waiting for the gimme? Have you studied and learned and disciplined and grown in faith over the word of God and true understanding of life and death and salvation and everything else that's in it? Or are you just waiting for God to tell you specifically? And that's the catch in that last one. Think over what I say, for the Lord's purpose will give you understanding in everything. I think he's missing that little part. In there because it is certainly the purpose of the Lord that gives us meaning and purpose behind everything we do in our life. And so those are just some reflections on faithfulness according to the gift of grace of enduring faithfulness by our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so we get to the second point, reasons to remain faithful. Very simply, remember we are saved and called by Jesus for eternal life since he is the promised Messiah to share the good news of salvation. That's verse 8 paraphrased. I'll say it again. Remember, we are saved and called by Jesus for eternal life since he is God's promised Messiah and it's our calling to share the good news of salvation to others. Pretty simple, pretty good reason, right? I mean, he's done a lot for us. He's given us a lot. It's a pretty simple reason. So, verse 9. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. So, let me paraphrase this for you too. This is all why I do what I do, since God can do anything. God's even using Paul in jail to bring about salvation for others. I do what I do since God can do anything. And if you think about it, how many people did Paul save because he was put in jail? 
I can think of three off the top of my head, the jailer and then the, the other two gentlemen. But uh, all in all, how many more do we not hear about? The word of God isn't bound. Paul's still talking about Jesus. There's nothing stopping him from talking about Jesus in any of these capacities or any of this. The word of God is not bound, and the word of God in him, despite being in jail, chained as a criminal, is not bound either. Therefore, it never needs to be bound, because it never is bound. They try to bind it, and believe me, they've tried to bind it throughout the centuries, and burning God's word, burning his Bibles, you've still got... Uh, countries in the world today where if you speak of Jesus, you're going to be persecuted, locked up. Not here. We think we're persecuted for silly things. It's nuts. So remember, we're saved and called by Jesus. He's the promised Messiah. It's our job to share the good news. And this is why I do what I do, because God can do anything. And in light of that good news, the word of God's not bound, never will be. So, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And brothers and sisters, I would like to hear you say this. I am willing to be used by God to bring about salvation for other people. Do you think you can say that? I hope so. I am willing to be used by God to bring about salvation for God's elect in other people. I am willing to be used by God to bring about the salvation for other people. One more time. I am willing to be used by God to bring about salvation in other people. I don't know if we all get that. I, again, there's so much stuff that's been flying around in the airwaves and through other denominations and other congregations and so on and so forth. But is this not it? Is this not the great commission in its simplicity? Are you willing to be used by God or not? And sadly, I think a lot of people aren't. A lot of people are trying to do the reverse. No, I'm going to use you, God. You're not going to use me. I'm going to use you. And I think that's religion. A lot of people trying to earn favor from God, invoking his spirit, invoking, you know, the feelings and whatever it is that we do, because I'm going to have God serve me today because I want to feel good about. Nope, <laughs> it's the other way around. It's always been that way in the Bible. I am willing to be used by God for the salvation of other people, his elect, who he chooses. Amen. Now, we go into this very cool thing that uh, Paul does, and he does this five times through the epistles. The saying is trustworthy. And what this is, when he says these sayings are trustworthy, they're very simplified, major theological concepts and ideas. Kind of like what we talked about yes, last week in verse 8 and 9, how they were very strong and powerful. Remember, he saved us called us to a holy calling, did it before the ages began and time began and everything else. And so there's a whole lot of theology there very simply in here too. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. This is a truth for your life, okay? Very simply. 
And all of these, I need you to know too, these verses were written in ultimately poetic fashion. They've changed a little bit um, because of translation over time. But in the Greek, it was highly poetic. And uh, to encourage Timothy to remain faithful to Jesus, it's to encourage Timothy to remain faithful to Jesus. And why? Well, because Jesus will always remain faithful to Timothy. And now let's take out Timothy and put your name in there. Okay? Very simply for this as well. Um, these verses were written in poetic fashion for Ron. Uh, to remain faithful to Jesus, because Jesus will always remain faithful to his promises for Ron. Amen. You fit in any of your names in this. So, take it for what it's worth. Now, if we've died with him, we'll also live with him. I want to remind you of two quotes that are literally burned on my heart, okay? Not looking at my notes, not anything. I know it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I look at this as a method of baptism too. Remember, as we've talked about baptism, I am symbolically dying to myself and being raised with Christ. Has this happened? Has this happened in your life? It's the first act of obedience as a Christian, which is why we believe in believer's baptism, because as children... They can't confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I really doubt that they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. I may not know this for, for a fact, but putting one and one together, it doesn't seem that an infant type of baptism has any meaning or purpose because is the meaning and the purpose for the baptism for the child or is the meaning and the purpose for the parent? It's, it's for the person. It's always for the person, and it's always for the individual, which is why, as adults, we believe in believer's baptism, where you're actually able to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In fact, you've probably seen the work that he's doing in your life, and you're probably awe-stricken and smitten by just how good God is to someone like you or me that don't deserve it and are able to embrace and see his grace. So this has a lot to do with your identification with Christ. Do you identify with Christ or are you scared to identify with Christ? In Christ, certainly, there is everything. <laughs> I don't know how else to, to phrase it. I, I've got these notes here, but I'm going to go abstain from those. But certainly, the baptism, the symbolically dying to self, being raised with Christ. If you've died with him, you're going to live with him. Have you died to yourself or are you still just living solely for yourself? Because if you've died to yourself, then you're living for Christ. Regardless of the cost. Because you know that this life isn't it. You've been promised and given the blessing of eternal life. And if you've been given the promise and the blessing of eternal life, this one doesn't really matter as much anymore. 
still important, still learning experience. I'm still here. I still have fun. There's still joy to be had, but there's suffering to be had too. I sure would like a life where there's no more pain, no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering. Oh yeah, I just need to read Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 and 4, and that's the promise. I can hold on to that for all eternity. And I can live my life today and tomorrow based on that fact. So what I want in this world is for people to know Jesus and to stop being such jerks <laughs> overall, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be the greatest thing? Like, I'm not saying, oh, kumbaya, we're all going to you know, love each other and this, that, and the other. Like, again, we're all different. There's no way that we're all going to be singing kumbaya over every single little thing. But if we all knew the Lord and Savior Jesus, we could. We really could. But we don't all know the Lord and Savior Jesus because there's a lot of people who are still bent to self. So we see that. So if we've died with him, we're going to live with him. Now, number 12. This is where things get gritty. Okay. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he also will deny us. Yeah, buddy. I'm with you. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, that's scary. It can be scary. So I want you to know that Jesus said this as he sent out the apostles. And I want you to know, too, that, that this has to deal entirely with fear. And I want you to know, three, that this letter was written to an elder and his church that are dealing with fear. So I'm going to take you to chapter 10 of Matthew. You don't have to turn there unless you want to, but chapter 10, verse 26 to 33, will add a lot more insight into what this verse is saying. Okay. And I guess let me give you a little context too. Jesus is sending out the disciples. He says, persecution is going to come. It's going to happen. Much like Jesus says at the end of, or at the end of chapter 16 of John, in this world you will face tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so we will face challenges. We will face struggles. But Jesus says this to his disciples and the apostles too. He says, have no fear. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That whole passage is about fear. Do you know why you'll deny Jesus? 
because you're scared for yourself. You're scared as if something bad's going to happen to you, as if this person's going to yell at you, as if they're maybe not going to like you, or maybe something else. Jesus says, fear not. And then he lays that out there, which certainly we can use as a method of, oh, I better not deny Jesus. I better adhere to the religious nature in order to appease God. But look at what he says in the very next one. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. And he can't deny himself. And so, again, Paul's telling Timothy, don't fear. Look, even our Lord Jesus, as he's sending out the apostles and the disciples, tells them not to fear. People are going to hate them. People are maybe going to try to kill them. But don't fear those who you know, can destroy the body but can't destroy the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. The one who is the true creator. The one who has given you life. Fear him if you're going to fear anyone. Don't fear these other people who don't know their right hand from their left. So here we are. And so endure suffering through this life into eternal life, reigning over God's creation with Christ. Good servants are judged by their faithfulness, not for their accomplishments. Know this. They're judged by their faithfulness, not for their accomplishments. Remain faithful. Be encouraged. Very simply, remain faithful. And then, even if we fail Jesus in word and deed, he cannot fail us in word and deed. And to oversimplify this all again for everybody, yet state the incredibly powerful facts and the truth is our Heavenly Father's enduring faithfulness towards us is a gift of grace according to the promise of life in Christ. Let us walk and live confidently in this truth for his glory and ultimately our good. And I'll say that one more time. To oversimplify everything I just told you, because I know there's a lot, and I was really skeptical to be like, oh, I should cut this in two at least. But I didn't. Overly simplify, yet state all the facts. Our Heavenly Father's enduring faithfulness towards us is indeed a gift of grace according to the promise of life that's in Christ. So may we walk and live confidently in this truth for His glory and our good as His people. Dear Heavenly Father, certainly as always, I thank you for the many blessings in our lives, especially those that we fail to see. And so, Lord Jesus, I just ask very humbly and simply that may this sermon, filled with your truth of grace, be used as an encouragement for us to remain fearless and faithful to Jesus through the good times and the bad times, because you, Lord Jesus, will always, always remain faithful to your promises for us individually, as well as your promises for us corporately as your church. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we certainly thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. Every single bit of it, even if it may be hard. So we love you and thank you profusely with hearts of gratitude. It's in your name we pray. Amen.